Good evening and welcome to the Noahide Nations class on Proverbs. I'm Doug Taylor. It is Sunday, October 17th, and we are starting in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 25, and we're going to do 25 and 26 together. So Proverbs chapter 15, verses 25 and 26. And the verse reads, The house of the haughty, or the arrogant, God will uproot, and he makes firm the boundary of the widow. It's an abomination of God, evil thoughts, and pure thoughts are words of pleasantness. Okay, one more time. The house of the haughty, God will uproot, and he makes firm the boundary of the widow. It's an abomination of God, evil thoughts, and pure thoughts are words of pleasantness. So, as we generally do in these classes, let's start with the first thing, which is, what are the questions? What questions do those two verses bring to mind that we would want to get on the table and try to understand in order to figure out what uh, King Solomon is trying to tell us? Okay, Terry, very good. How are they related? I mean, we've got the house of the haughty, we've got the boundary of the widow, we've got evil thoughts and pure thoughts. What's going on with all that, and how is it all related together? Very good. What else? What other questions are out there? I'll suggest a couple. Uh, what is the house of the haughty? I mean, it's kind of a funny way to say it. Um, what does that mean? And how will God uproot it? Because it says God will uproot, but how does that actually work? I mean, remember, Proverbs is a very practical book. It's talking about um, the, uh, the practical world we live in. How does that actually work, that God uproots it? And how does it work that he makes firm the boundary of the widow? And what does the boundary of the widow have to do with an arrogant person or a haughty person? And then in the last part, what are evil thoughts? And how are they an abomination of God? And then, of course, by contrast, what are pure thoughts? And how are they words of pleasantness? And in the last part, there doesn't seem to be a direct comparison because it says evil thoughts are an abomination to God, but then it says pure thoughts are words of pleasantness? I mean, why doesn't it say they're pleasing to God? Why do we have this abomination to God in one part but not in the other? And, uh, Terry, you've uh, either directly asked or alluded to, um, what's the relationship here? And why are we taking these two verses together? Yes, good point. What's the parallel? What's the symmetry? Uh, what's, what, what, are, what exactly are the opposites? You know, we talk about hot and cold or light and dark. What's going on here? So Rabbi Moskowitz explained like this. He said, sometimes in a verse, we don't find a consequence. 
So we try to see if there's a connection between the verse before it or the verse after it. And sometimes if a verse does have a consequence, the next verse makes it even clearer. Okay? And Terry and Laurie, we are on Proverbs uh, chapter 15, verses 25 and 26. So if we start at the beginning then, when it talks about the house of the haughty or the arrogant, God will uproot. So what is haughty or arrogant? Well, sometimes you can tell what the cause is if you look at the effect. In this case, what we see in this verse is that God will break it down, okay, whatever it is. So the haughty person feels that his house can't be broken down. Now, we don't know how that will work yet, but based on the verse, it seems to be somehow about a person's arrogance regarding their security in their house. Okay? And welcome, Louis. We're on uh, Proverbs chapter 15, verses 25 and 26. 15, 25, and 26. I apologize for not having a, a PowerPoint up for this. Now, the next part talks about the boundary of the widow. It says, he, meaning God, makes firm the boundary of the widow. Why would you suppose that a widow would be mentioned here? Any thoughts about what is the unique nature of a widow? Excellent, Terry. Weakness. The, yes, Francesca, thank you. She's alone. A widow is kind of the poorest of the poor. Now, we have to transform ourselves out of our current time a little bit and put us in uh, earlier societies. In earlier societies, women did not go to the workplace. So, I mean, the husband went out and worked. She stayed home, okay, raised the kids, kept the house, whatever. So if she became a widow, she didn't have money, and she didn't have a means to get money. Nowadays, we have certain welfare systems and different governmental mechanisms, uh, at least in the United States, so that there are potential sources of income for a widow. But in earlier societies, that wasn't necessarily the case. And so if a woman's husband died, she wouldn't necessarily have anyone to provide for her. So the widow doesn't really have a house. I mean, maybe she's got kind of a hovel or, you know, something that she lives in. So Rabbi Moskowitz suggests that boundary refers to whatever she actually does have. Okay? So God makes firm the boundary of the widow or whatever she does have. Now, continuing on, what's an evil thought? Well, if we're connecting the two verses, then Rabbi Moskowitz interprets it as security in his house. A person has security in his house. So why is it an evil thought to have security in one's house? Because the only real security is God. If you have security in a house, 
you know, I got this big mansion, I'm protected, you know, everything's going to be fine, nobody can hurt me, whatever. Life can't get at me. It's arrogant. Why? Because you're overestimating the physical world. Now, abomination, according to Rabbi Moskowitz here, means that there are two steps to consequences. Most people think that there are no consequences to an evil thought. But what happens is that if you think enough on those things, you can come to a point where you'll come to carry out actions based on your thoughts. So thoughts do bring about consequences, but it's not immediate. So there's the thought and then the action that follows from the thought. We've got two steps there. Now, we know that security is a very basic drive of a human being. And that security that we want to have is going to take years to undo. I mean, to undo our idea of the physical world. Okay. Uh, and Louis, no, I don't, I, I'm sorry, I did not prepare a PowerPoint uh, for, uh, for this week, so I don't have the verses on screen tonight. Um, but let me just uh, review the, the verses that we're reading, uh, 15, 25, and 26 read, The house of the haughty God will uproot, and he makes firm the boundary of the widow. It's an abomination of God, evil thoughts, and pure thoughts are words of pleasantness. Okay, so we have this idea that we want security. Now, the reality is that security in the physical world is an illusion. There is no security in the physical world. Stuff can always happen to you. It doesn't matter how much wealth you have. It doesn't matter how, much, uh, how many walls you have. It doesn't matter how much armor you have. There's always a way that it can be uh, penetrated. So it's going to take a while because that idea of security is a very basic human drive. It's going to take some years to, to undo that. And the question is, is it worth it? I mean, is it worth all the energy that it would take you to undo the, uh, the desire for physical security? Okay. And for those of you that just joined, we are on Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 25 and 26. We're taking them together. Proverbs 15, verse 25 and 26. So Rabbi Moskowitz said like this. He said, we have to make an evaluation of spending our life studying and making our minds pure of what's sometimes called dross or mistakes. And as we've asked the question, is it worth all the work? If you need security in your house, your physical house, got to have those four walls and those super locks and the double alarm system and all that, then the physical, the physical world, that focus on the physical starts to take over your whole personality. Uh, you have to keep working on the house. I, I got to make it better. I got to have more stuff up there. I'll put up a, a you know a tighter fence, uh, more cameras, uh, whatever it might be. 
the house starts to take over your whole life. And you have to choose whether you have control over your life or the house takes over your whole life. Okay? And you have probably met people whose entire life is wrapped up in their house and their belongings in the house. And they are, they would be totally decimated and their lives would be destroyed if the house burned to the ground. Okay? Interestingly, uh, I heard of a situation once where um, a uh, uh, couple was raising a child and they had a house fire when the child, I think, was about five. And they lost everything, or at least he lost all his toys. And so later, after they, you know, got re-set uh, up in a different place, and they wanted to try to discipline him, and they wanted to try to discipline him by taking away his toys, it didn't work. Because he was already, had kind of gotten used to the idea that stuff could you know, be taken away, and it didn't have the same emotional effect or the same uh, effect in terms of getting the behavior that they want, because, hey, he'd already lost everything, so it wasn't that, uh, that big a deal. Now, when a human being overestimates the physical world, okay, there's a certain sense that he's faking himself out which is why sometimes people go to extremes with their homes. I mean, in one way, they want to feel that physical security, and in another way, they don't feel it. So they keep pouring energy into it. The possibility of being uprooted is a real possibility. And Rabbi Moskowitz held they have to sense this. So they, they're putting all their energy into the physical, and yet it leads them into a certain level of conflict because at some level they know that there isn't any absolute protection. You can always lose it. The richest person in the world can lose everything they have. Okay? I mean, you know, a person with, with unimaginable wealth could get a terminal disease, you know? And what could does the wealth do them then? So... The real view, the practical view of a house, is that it is something practical. Yeah, it's comfortable, protects me from the weather, you know, it affords a certain level of, you know, protection, sometimes from certain physical things. But when it becomes your security, like that's the whole thing for you, then you have to spend lots of time fixing it up and making it better. And it doesn't really take away the insecurity that you feel. Because the only way to take away your insecurity is to see reality clearly. And to recognize there is no security in the physical world. Not really. Certainly there are steps that we can take practically to protect ourselves from certain things. But there's no absolute security. You can't protect yourself from everything. So... To undo your security in the physical world may require years of work. And what's the end result? That seems to be the pure thought that the last part of verse 26 is referring to. 
and what's a pure thought? I'll submit to you that it's a thought produced by a mind that thinks correctly and that has been trained in logic and reasoning so that that mind doesn't produce mistakes. So the end result of undoing that emotion, that desire for the physical security is to be able to get to that end place of the pure thought. And why are the thoughts from a mind like that considered pleasantness? Because they are completely in line with reality. There's no conflict in that person. There's no duplicitousness. There's no hidden agenda. That person has the, the peace that comes from recognizing they are totally and absolutely in line with reality. So, um, those thoughts are truly present, excuse me, pleasant, precisely because they are in line with reality and with the systems that God created. Okay, questions. Uh, Francesca, you ask, why only the haughty person will be brought down and not the materialistic person? Ah, good question. Uh, my understanding of the verse is that in this case, the haughty is referring to a person uh, who is putting their security in the materialistic. It's the arrogantness of overestimating the physical world. So the haughty person in this case is synonymous with the materialistic person. In other words, that's that's the definition or the aspect of haughtiness, as I understand it, that this verse is getting at. Um, uh, that the person puts their total emphasis and security in the physical. Okay? Francesca, tell me if that does not answer your question. And Lori and Terry, yeah, it's, it's, there's a certain keeping up with the Jonesness part, but, um, uh, thanks, Francesca. But this verse is not getting at the aspect of the keeping up with the Jones part. It's, which, which is a comparison thing and a certain form of, I guess, jealousy. This verse, uh, as I understand it, is getting to the aspect of that's where my security in life is. It's in my physical possessions. Uh, and uh, so it's, it's not necessarily in comparison to someone else, uh, but just that's my focus in life and that's what I, you know, what I, I put my personal security in. Uh, and so I try to keep myself as, um, you know, carefully locked up as I can. And I have this house with these walls and, and you know, going to keep out anything bad and make sure I'm not hurt and all those kinds of things. It's a very interesting thing to note along that line that if you look at people today who are very famous for whatever reason, think about how they live. Many of them, perhaps not all, but I'd suggest that many of them live in gated communities, sometimes with security guards, to prevent anyone from getting to them. The, the sages, my understanding is, had a completely different view of that. Their idea was that you had a house that was open on all four sides. There were like doors on all four sides that were open so that anybody could come in from any direction. 
Why? Because they weren't worried about the physical. Their house was a place of Torah study. Their house was a place of where ideas were discussed, and they wanted to make it open and accessible for anyone to be able to get into that. So it's a very interesting contrast between the way that we see, uh, you know, supposedly important and famous people live versus how a true scholar would live who sees the material things as only a practical means to the real good, which is being involved in the world of learning and study and the world of ideas and the world of, uh, of growth. Okay, any questions on these two verses? Yes, Francesca, that is trust in Hashem. Um, and, and I think, as I mean, my understanding of that is that it's not a trust that says, okay, God will protect anything bad from happening to me. It's more a realistic outlook of, here's what's really important to me. You know, it's important that I'd be involved in learning and that other people who want to be involved in learning have, you know, access to me to be able to do that. Um, so, I mean, you know, if you were in a, you know, situation where you knew there were banditos in town and uh, so forth, I don't know, they might, you know, shut their doors and, and say, oh, okay, a, a reasonably prudent man would, uh, uh, you know, make sure that he's not an open target. But, their emphasis wasn't on the material. Uh, the emphasis was on uh, uh, was on uh, learning in the world of ideas, as I understand it. Then let's move on to Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 27. And the verse reads, One who gains through cheating sullies his own house, but one who hates presence will live. One who gains through cheating sullies his own house, but one who hates presence will live. Okay. So, Rabbi Moskowitz said in, in his understanding that the, the cheating is not about robbery in this particular verse. Okay, so one who gains through cheating sullies his own house, but one who hates presence will live. Presence probably synonymous with gifts. So what are the questions? What questions pop to mind here? Okay, Louis, your version says greedy. Let's see. Uh, you mean one who is greedy sullies his own house? Just want to make sure. Uh, okay, so in this case, I'm going to go with Rabbi Moskowitz's uh, interpretation. And, and as we discussed, there are you know a number of possible interpretations, even sometimes of the words in the verse. Uh, and let's see what what we come up with on that. Sully's his home means to uh, sully's is a, a, another word as I understand it for dirties his own home, um, uh, trashes it, 
So, a couple of questions that, that came to my mind. First of all, um, how do you gain through cheating? Uh, what's, what's intended there? And, and how does cheating result in sullying or kind of messing up one's own house? And, and what does King Solomon mean in that particular part? Okay, Linda, what, what does greed and gifts have to do with each other? Good question. We've got uh, this, this cheating on the one part, but we got gifts on the other. It's like, oh, that's kind of a funny comparison. And, and why is it that a person who hates presence uh, will live? I mean, what does that mean? I mean, we're all living, and, uh, you know, most of us probably like to get gifts. Uh, so, uh, what, what, and what, what's the comparison here? Um, so we've got cheating, we've got hating presents, uh, we've got selling one's house versus living. Uh, what's King Solomon talking about? So this is how Rabbi Moskowitz interpreted the verse. He said the first half, um, and actually, uh, let me go back in the chat here, Louis, because I think, yeah, you said your version says greedy, and I think we are going to end up uh, talking about the same thing here. Because uh, Rabbi Moskowitz said the first half of the verse talks about greed. So he's, he's agreeing with that interpretation. Um, I mean, cheating is a, for, is a, is a way of, of being greedy. You know, you want something. So the verse has to be talking about greed. So he suggests that establishes the subject there. The subject is greed. So then in the second half, we see the opposite, which is to hate presents or hate gifts. Now, the opposite of hating a present is desiring a present. So he suggests, Rabbi Moskowitz suggests that to desire a present is connected to greed. So let's think about that with regard to physical things. What is the nature of a present? I'll submit that it's something that a person receives that he did not earn. Because if he earned it, it wouldn't be a present. So there's an aspect here in a present of getting something for free. Something I didn't earn. And I mean, which of us doesn't like to get something for free? Advertisers use that all the time, you know? And free with your purchase, whatever it happens to be. Yet the desire for presence, the desire for presence, stems from greed. Now, I want to make a clarification and differentiation between receiving a present. Receiving a present is something different. Okay, someone brings me a present. That's a very nice thing. But the desire for presents, I want them. That stems from greed. We want something that we don't otherwise have, and we want it for free. And the present could even be something intangible. I mean, it doesn't have to be something physical. Uh, for example, I might have a desire to be appreciated. Okay, 
But beneath that could be the desire to get something for free, something for nothing. Maybe I want to be appreciated even though I didn't do anything to be appreciated, but I'd still like it if people would appreciate me. So then the question is, what's wrong with that? I mean, what is wrong with getting something for nothing? Anybody have an idea about that? What is the problem of wanting to get something for nothing? Okay, Francesca, could be laziness. Okay, good. What else? That Louis, that's all you think about? Okay. Could be greed, yep. So let's think this through. Someone comes along and gives you a brand new car, the car of your dreams. Out of the blue, someone gives you a brand new car. Your neighbor, your second cousin, um, you know, uh, somebody at work says, hey, I have this $45,000 brand new luxury car and I'm going to give it to you. What happens to your relationship with that person? Ah, Francesca, thank you so much. You become obligated to them. When you accept gifts, you're indebted to someone. It may not be overt. It could be very subtle. But there's a certain indebtedness that comes about because the other person gave you something that you didn't deserve, something that you didn't earn. And yes, Louis could be very much like politicians. Someone comes along and gives a politician, I don't know what the contribution rules are, but let's say that, you know, most everybody is giving the, the politician $10, $20, $50 to run for office, and then somebody comes along and gives $5 million. Yeah, Lori and Terry, lots of money. What happens to that person's relationship to that individual, particularly if that individual says, you know, this bill in, in uh, this law that's about to be passed is really going to hurt my business. Suppose you could do something about that? Now, they haven't done anything necessarily illegal, but there's an implied indebtedness. Okay? Now, this, this I mean, we all get gifts. And... You know, this kind of thing uh, can happen. Uh, and let me pause. Francesca, you asked, does that become a bribe? That all depends uh, on how you define a bribe. Uh, if you define a bribe as, uh, let's say I'm a judge and I'm trying a case, and a person goes to the judge and says, I will give you $5 million if you will rule this way. That's a bribe. If a person gives $5 million to a political campaign for someone to get elected and then gets invited to the uh, election celebration dinner and happens to suggest to the newly elected official, boy, it'd really be nice if taxes didn't get raised this year. It, was it a bribe? It's very subtle. Because I don't think you can say overtly it was, 
But what's happening is there is an unspoken request. I have given you money. I expect you now to help me. And I do not want taxes raised or whatever the, the thing is. So probably legally it's not overtly a bribe. But is there a sense of obligation? Yes, I would say there is. Now, Rabbi Moskowitz points out that when you're indebted, it affects the way that you think. For example, a person who accepts a living from a rich person can never speak objectively to that rich person because he knows that the rich person is the source of his living. And further, desiring presence reinforces that I should get things for free in life rather than working for them or earning them, which can also negatively affect my thinking process in terms of seeing reality clearly. So I've got kind of a double whammy here. First of all, I can't really, you know, tell the person and operate independently from the person who is giving me the money because there's an indebtedness there. Plus, if I have that desire for getting things free in life, now I'm also negatively affecting my thinking process in terms of seeing reality clearly. Now, ideally, we never want to do anything that affects our thinking process. So, the verse is teaching us that this desire, the desire for gifts sullies one's own house, one's own thinking, while the person who hates presence, that is, they don't desire something free for someone else, and they don't want it because they see the harm that it does to their thinking process and the harm that it does to their ability to be objective with people, that person will live in the sense that their thinking process, which hugely affects the quality of life that they have, that thinking process will be untarnished by the harm that comes to the person in the first half of the verse. So in that sense, the one who hates presence will live, that is, will live a truly independent life and has the opportunity to see reality clearly, while the one who uh, desires, is greedy and desires to get that stuff for free, is going to mess up his own thinking process. Okay, any questions here? Okay, good. Uh, let's move on then to Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 28. And the verse reads, The heart of a righteous person will consider what to answer, but the mouth of the wicked will utter evil. The heart of a righteous person will consider what to answer, but the mouth of the wicked will utter evil. So, what are the questions? Oh, okay, Linda. Interesting. How does a heart talk? Yeah. Which, which kind of begs us to, what's the heart of a righteous person mean? Okay, what, what does that do? And Francesca, thank you. The mouth of the wicked will utter evil. Well, of course... <laughs> You know, isn't that second half a little bit like the Department of Redundancy Department? I mean, what else would we expect a wicked person to utter except evil? 
And King Solomon wouldn't tell us the obvious. So what's he getting at here? Okay. And when it says the heart of a righteous person will consider what to answer, well, what does it mean to consider what to answer? Why does it say that? Why did he pick those particular words? Ah, Francesca, good. And can we define a righteous person? You bet. What is a righteous person? So, as we've discussed uh, on some other verses, in the days when this book was written, the word heart generally, as I understand it, referred to the mind. We tend to think of it today as that the heart refers to emotions. But in the days when this book was written, heart referred to the mind. So we could say that the first half is saying that the mind of a righteous person will consider what to answer. So I want to ask the question, why doesn't the verse say that the mind of the righteous person will know what to answer? Why does it say we'll consider what to answer? Okay. And Lori and Terry, you've said, well, talking your brain does not work. That can also be true. Uh, there's an old saying, it is better to be silent and thought a fool than to opens one, open one's mouth and remove all doubt. Uh, so, I want to suggest that the word consider means here that the person is thinking about the situation. He's doing an analysis. It's not a knee-jerk reaction, as we sometimes see people do when they say, oh, I know the answer to that, it's this. You know, you put a question out or you say something, oh yeah, I know the answer to that, boom, boom, boom. Whatever the this is. The righteous person and, and Francesca, to get to your question about defining that, I'll suggest that a righteous person uh, is one who is um, operating in accordance with reality. Okay, and they're using their mind to analyze situations, uh, consider consequences, uh, look at the big picture, consider the impact of what they do or say on other people as well as themselves. Uh, this is a person operating in accordance with reality. I'm not saying that a righteous person is one who does not have desires to do evil things. Uh, uh, whatever. I think Rabbi Moskowitz has made the comment before that, uh, you know, or and maybe the sages made this uh, in the Talmud, uh, a righteous, um, a wicked person does what a righteous person thinks about doing. Or maybe it's converse that a righteous person thinks about doing what an evil person actually does. doesn't mean that the righteous person doesn't have the desires. It means that they control the desires and they don't act in accordance with them. The evil person acts in accordance with his desires. There is a very high level, I think, uh, in the rarefied atmosphere of a righteous person that doesn't even have the desires but that's at a, you know, a, a very high level. That's kind of a, a different step up above what Mishle generally, as I understand it, calls a righteous person. So as that person is doing the analysis, 
I'll suggest that he's taking into account several major areas. First of all, who am I speaking to? You know, am I speaking to my child? Am I speaking to another adult? Am I speaking to my boss? Am I speaking to the person in the grocery store? Who is the person on the other end of this conversation? What, and then number two, what is their level of understanding? How much are they capable of understanding? Do I have to spell this out in very simple terms? Or can I give them a, you know, a fairly complex answer and I know them well enough to know that they'll get it? Is this person a friend or a foe? Am I talking to a person who's potentially an enemy? In which case I would probably craft my answer differently than if the person were uh, considered to be a friend. What are the consequences of what I'm about to say? The consequences to me, the consequences to them, the consequences to anyone else, which could be a lot of people. So in this particular part, there's a sense of justice here. How does my answer affect the greater good? It's not just a selfish thing. Okay. And then finally, should I answer at all? I mean, maybe this is a case where it's better to say nothing. So the heart of the righteous person, the mind of the righteous person, considers what to answer. There's an analysis going on. There's thinking about various aspects of it. Uh, so he's, he's, he's not hip-shooting. Okay? If he's asked his opinion about something, he'll consider what to answer. If he's insulted, he'll consider what to answer. The analysis is part of what happens before he answers virtually anything of substance. So back to a point that was made earlier, uh, you know, uh, you know, you can't have the brain engaged, uh, you know, while you're talking sometimes. And some people start talking uh, maybe before they engage their mind. This is saying the opposite. You engage the mind first, then you answer if it's appropriate to. Um, and Laurie and Terry, yes, there's a certain aspect of guarding your wisdom here. Guarding meaning knowing when it's appropriate to put it out there and when it's not appropriate. There are certain ideas that we each might have that would not be appropriate for someone else. They're not ready for it. They couldn't understand it. If I put that idea out there, it would cause them to close off. So uh, it becomes very important to, uh, to consider these things. Now, by contrast, the mouth of the wicked utters evil. Okay, so what does that mean here? So let's stop and ask the question, well, what's evil? I mean, we use that term a lot. Anyone have a definition of evil? What does it actually mean in practical, everyday terms? What is evil? Okay, uh, Laurie and Terry, you've suggested it's slander. Okay, that might be one kind, but does that encompass all of the possibilities? Okay, an inclination to evil, right, but we still we can't use the word in its definition. So if we're, if, uh, we, have to, we have to try to find a definition that does not use the word evil in the definition. Anything, Louis, you suggested that takes us away from Hashem, okay. Uh, Francesca, okay, irrational consequences, all right. So 
these are all all good and Lori and Terry being greedy, right? And at, they're all aspects of it. And I'm going to suggest a definition that I think will encompass all of those. And this is not my idea. Uh, this is Sajigang said that evil is ignorance. Evil is ignorance. It's not some dastardly awful creature in Stephen King novels, but it's ignorance. And what is it ignorance of? I'll suggest it's ignorance of reality. Ignorance of reality. Because if a person truly saw reality in a particular situation, he wouldn't be ignorant. But we make decisions sometimes on the basis of our emotions, not on the basis, which tend to cloud reality, not on the basis of what is really going on or what is really happening. So what is the wicked person actually doing when it says the mouth of the wicked will utter evil? The wicked person is answering to whatever is being asked in this situation, ignorance. In other words, his answer is a deviation from reality. He is not answering uh, in accordance with reality, in accordance with justice, in accordance with the systems that God created, which are reality. What he's answering is coming from following his emotions, which are clouding his view of reality, and by following them, then our view of the situation is clouded so we can't see reality, and the more that you do that, the farther you get from reality. So the wicked person will utter ideas and responses or whatever they are that are not in line with reality. So I'll suggest that the verse is teaching us the difference between how the righteous man answers in a situation and how the wicked man answers. The righteous man answers by considering first all of the relevant factors, making an analysis, and then giving a response. The wicked just utters ignorance. And note, importantly, that there is a difference between the formulation of the first half and the second half. In the first half, it says the righteous considers what to answer. As we discussed, he stops and thinks about it. While it says in the second half, the mouth of the wicked will utter evil. There's no stopping to consider there. It's just immediately put out. No pause for consideration or to think about it. Okay, so we have a, a, a juxtaposition of how a righteous person answers and how uh, or deals with a question, if you will, uh, versus a wicked person. Okay, any questions on this? We have time for one more verse. So let's do Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 29. And the verse reads, Hashem is far from the wicked, but he will hear the prayer of the righteous. Hashem is far from the wicked, but he will hear the prayer of the righteous. So, thank you, Prescott, for uh, writing that there on, uh, on screen.
Hashem is far from the wicked, but he will hear the prayer of the righteous. So what are the questions? What questions come to mind about this verse? We're looking for anything that doesn't make sense, anything that seems out of place, anything that needs to be defined, anything that is not immediately obvious to us. Okay, Louis, how far is the righteous? Yeah, if Hashem is far from the wicked, I'm, I'm uh, assuming you're saying, well, then how far is he from the righteous? Okay, good. Good question. In fact, what does it mean that Hashem is far from anyone? What, what, is, what is the distance metaphor here? I mean, obviously it can't be a physical metaphor because, you know, Hashem is omnipresent. So what does it mean he's far from the wicked? And why? And Francesca, very good, thank you. Uh, Mishle is about practicality. So kind of, you know, what's Hashem doing in this? You know, this is a practical book. Uh, why, why is that there? Um, we don't normally see that in most of these verses. Um, okay, and I'm sorry, I, I, do not, I don't know, is it Consuelo? Forgive me if I'm mispronouncing your name. I don't mean to, uh, to do so. Oh, good. Okay. From heaven to earth. Okay. That could be the distance metaphor. Okay. Good. Um, he can hear you better if you are close to him. Okay, Louis. We'll have to define then what close to means and how we get there. Um, uh, Noahide uh, gal... Uh, how are we to address this ignorance? Trust Hashem, not much to gain by talking with evil. Okay. And Prescott, you've asked, is it that Hashem distances from the wicked or that the wicked do not think of Hashem and therefore he is far from them by the choice of the wicked? Ah, very good. Very good. Okay. So let's, let's see if we can lay all this out. We've talked before that there are two systems that man is subject to. The first is the laws of nature, and that includes things like the weather, earthquakes, chance probabilities, and so forth. For the normal person, if you swim out in the riptide, the riptide will pull you under. It does not make a difference who you are. It will not matter. The, under the laws of nature, the riptide is not a respecter of persons. Neither is the lion if he is hungry. If you're there, he'll make lunch out of you. So every one of us has to deal with the laws of nature. That's one system. Okay? Second system, and Lori and Terry, I think this may be what you're getting at. There is God's personal providence. Okay, this sometimes comes into play when a person is on a certain level. When a person has reached a certain level, they can, uh, I, I cannot say for sure whether, you know, it always happens, but they can come under the, uh, under God's personal providence. And under God's personal providence, as I understand it, God intervenes or may intervene in the laws of nature to help or protect the righteous person. So, for example, 
righteous person is walking through the forest on a path. At the other end of the path, there's a lion coming his direction. So then God's personal providence may, providence may intervene and cause a deer to run across the lion's path so that the lion chases after it and the righteous person is saved. Now, again, to the best of my knowledge, God's personal providence is not an open miracle. Okay? God's personal providence works within the laws of nature so that essentially you can never tell exactly when this may have happened. Okay? Now you can study where God intervenes in people's lives and learn about that from studying the Torah and the Tanakh and where those kinds of things happen. Okay? It's also my understanding that this does not happen for everyone, and not always, but only by someone who's reached a certain level of righteousness and on certain occasions. And I cannot define what the certain is. Okay. Um, now, uh, Consuelo, you've suggested uh, close to him uh, means if you're doing his uh, God's mitzvot and far when you're not doing his mitzvot. Could that be the understanding? Let's see. That's a possibility. Okay. Now, uh, because if you are doing the mitzvot with the right understanding and you're, uh, m you know, mentally involved in that, it's not just a road thing for you, but you're mentally involved in learning and have reached a certain level, okay, then that could be the case. Now, the Malbum indicates that providence, divine providence, responds to human activity. That is, providence responds to a person in accordance with their actions, with their deeds. So, to a degree that a person's deeds are distant from God, okay, and I'll suggest that that means they are distant from reality and the knowledge of Hashem, and Consuelo, to your point, could also mean uh, if they're not following the uh, God's commandments, then that person is simply subject to the laws of nature. So the lion comes along, they get eaten, uh, they may, you know, live out their life, uh, you know, to a certain degree, they may run into troubles, they are just subject to the laws of nature. If they're in the right place at the right time, great. If they're in the wrong place at the wrong time, not so great. Hashem's personal providence is distant from that person. Okay? The person is not at a level to be subject to that kind of providential intervention. So that's the person in the first half of the verse. Hashem's personal providence is far from the wicked. They're simply subject to the laws of nature, and God's personal providence will not intervene for them. By contrast, for the righteous, when they pray for help, God will hear them, and I put here in quotes. That is, they will be on such a level as to warrant God's personal providence, this personal intervention. And it's not that God changes his mind. It's that the person raises himself to such a level through his deeds, through his learning, through his character development, that God relates to him differently. Okay? 
And as I understand it, that is also the primary purpose of prayer and why the prayers in the Siddur, the Jewish prayer book, are written down. Okay, I think it's a surprise for many people who are not familiar with the Torah approach to life and they come in and they see the prayer book and say, gee, you know, everything is like all written down. I'm supposed to just read this. Those prayers, as I understand it, have been carefully crafted by the sages to reflect correct ideas about God. So the prayer primarily consists of reviewing correct ideas about God, which, if you understand them, then raises that person to a higher level because of their higher, their higher level of understanding and knowledge, and that higher level means that God relates to you differently. You know, God relates differently to a Moses than uh, to, you know, a person with no knowledge at all. I'm not suggesting that God does not care about those people. He relates to them differently. And we see that, you know, in the Torah, that God relates to certain people in different ways. So that prayer, that reviewing of correct ideas, uh, the deeds, the keeping the mitzvot, and so forth, um, put you in a situation where you are potentially raising yourself to a higher level. And as you uh, are raised to a higher level, then there's a potential that God will relate to you differently. So the verse, from a practical standpoint, uh, back to uh, Francesca's question about, you know, wait a minute, isn't Mishlei a practical book? Uh, the verse is talking about God's personal providence which is a very practical thing, and how that that doesn't apply to the wicked, but can apply to the righteous. Okay, any questions on that verse? In that case, we'll stop for the evening. Thanks very much for joining, and I hope you can join next time.